You're listening to Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Joey as he guides us through the world and major works of Kabbalah, Hasidic masters, and Jewish philosophy, shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay, so Be'ezra Hashem, we're going to be picking up where we left off in the series of Shirim on the Bashem Tov And before the Chagim, what we were talking about was how the vision of unity that the Besht brought down into the world, that saw all things as part of one unified whole, in spite of all apparent differences and disparities and concealments, how this theory of everything, this awareness of the divine presence in every aspect of existence is not simply some theosophical or theoretical philosophical position that animates the conception of the relationship between God and the universe, but rather it is an idea that permeates into the very fabric of day-to-day experience. That for the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh, there was nothing more worthless than a mind filled with philosophical speculation of godliness, if it wasn't connected to the heart itself. As we said in the introductory shir, that the name Tov, that Baal Shem Tov, that goodness that we're going to be learning about in this week's Parsha, in my Sabaratius of the Or Ki Tov, that Or Haganus is the same gematria as the shame of Das, as the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu that represents the concept of Das, which is the name Aleph Hey Vav Hey, which comes from the acronym of Es HaShamayim V'Es Ha'aretz. That that name of Das, that name of connection and connectivity between the head and the heart, which the Kutzke Rebbe famously said that the greatest distance in the world is the short distance between the head and the heart that small neck area that blocks out all intellectual knowledge from entering into any real emotionally lived experience. What the Baal Shem Tov came to do was to break down those partitions. To allow us to take the conceptual knowledge of godliness and to allow it to penetrate into our hearts. Again, the heart representing all emotionality, all human experience as it is lived in the vulnerable, intimate places of the heart not the facades that we put up, not the masks that we walk around with day by day in our intellectual superiority, but rather the very brokenheartedness that each and every one of us fear, down to the kishkas, that's what the best wanted. So it was not enough for the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh to teach us that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is everything and that he is Sayyiv Kal Amin, he surrounds all worlds, so to speak, and that he has Mimala Kal Amin, that he fills all worlds, and that Lace Asar Panimine, and that there's no place devoid of his presence. That wasn't enough. And that's something we could have gleaned from the writings of the Mikubalim if we read them properly. What the Baal Shem Tov wanted to do, like we said, is he wanted to bring. Shemayim down to earth. He wanted us to find HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the day-to-day experiences. And therefore, if the Baal Shem Tov's teachings are going to mean anything, 
They have to mean everything in terms of our day-to-day -day experiences. What we spoke about in the first two shirim of the Baal Shem Tov was namely that Aleph, the main area of power that we have as human beings, uh, really the only vestige of power, because we live in a world of powerlessness, we live in a world or a space where human beings are thrown into a place that is not our own. It's a malchus, it's a kingship that is destitute, it's a leisle megar meklum, it has nothing of its own. And it's our job to hold on to the slight vestiges of power that remain within us. And we saw from the teachings of the Beshta Kadosh that the only area that we actually have some semblance of power is in the mind. That the place where a person focuses their mind is quite literally where a person is. And we said that it's not some magical thinking that tells us that if I think hard enough, the universe will gift me what I desire. But rather, it's really the opposite. If I think hard enough and I align myself in the posture of my consciousness to what is taking place in front of me at this moment, I can find the moment of wholeness. I can find the moment of satisfaction. I can find the moment of comfort. And then we spoke after kind of illuminating ourselves to the power of the mind, and that the machshava is an oilam male, and that the place where a person thinks, that's where they are in their entirety. We spoke about hishta'avus, we spoke about equanimity, the ability for a human being to find all things being equal, the good, the bad, the up, the down, the dark, the light, the gray, the black, the white, all of it. That for a person who is a victim of circumstance, for an individual who lives in a world with a myth of power, where they think that we are in control of anything, so then when things don't go our way, we become frustrated and resentful. When a person is capable of acknowledging and incorporating and embodying the ideas of bittel, of self-nullification, of the awareness that we are nothing but an expression of godliness in this world, because godliness is everything, with all of the prerequisite philosophical halachos that ensure that that idea not be misinterpreted, when we come to realize the sheer and abject powerlessness of the human being in the face of the power of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we begin to see that all things are equal, all things are shining, and that the good, the bad, both of them can become the seat of encountering the divine in our lives. What I want to speak about tonight, Be'ezra Sashem, is going to be applying this to an even more human experience, beyond the faith that the individual themselves lives with, beyond the presence of mind that a person lives with. We're going to encounter here is one of the more essential and difficult aspects of the Baal Shem Tov's teachings, which is the interrelationship that we have with others, the relationship that we have with other human beings, with other Jews, with other souls in this world, with other people, with otherness in general. Because the first encounter with consciousness, the first encounter that we have as human beings with the formation of our own subjectivity is by way of the other. That as the human being remains self-saturated within themselves in their infantile point of mind, I'm omnipotent. As a child, I cry, I get fed. I cry, I get changed. As the psychologists would point out, the child lives with a certain illusion of omnipotence. There's no knowledge of cause and effect. There's no knowledge that I'm getting fed because my mother heard me cry or I'm getting changed because my parents heard me cry. In the child's mind, there's an immediacy between my desire for something to happen and that thing to happen. 
And what we're born into is a state of illusionment, a state where we feel that we are the masters of the universe, that we are the center of the universe, and nothing matters other than ourselves. And then hopefully when development takes place in a healthy way, we encounter otherness. We encounter the fact that our parents have their own forms of subjectivity, that we don't get fed every second that we cry. We don't get changed to the moment that we ask to be changed. And we begin to be disillusioned from that illusion of omnipotence. We begin to recognize that there are others in the world, that I am not the center of the universe. And if that goes well, then a person can hopefully function well between the balance of the self and the other, wherein my main focus is balanced between taking care of myself and ensuring that I'm not causing harm to others. But lo aleinu, for many of us, we're not properly transitioning from this perspective. And even as adults, and the Baal Tov understood this very deeply, we have no idea how to interact with other people. We have no idea how to live in the world where reality forces us to acknowledge that we are not the center of the universe. And the Baal Tov has a very famous teaching, a famous teaching that is brought down in numerous places. It's brought down in the Toldos Yaakov Yosef, it's brought down in Kesar Shem Tov, which is a safer that tonight's year was going to be based on. But as I came back from, uh, from Yontif vacation, I came to realize that I think I left my safer at work, so I don't have it with me. But what the Baal Shem Tov says is as follows. The Baal Shem Tov says that when a person walks around the world, when a person encounters day-to-day experience and they see frustrating things in other people, they see dirty things in other people, they see broken things in other people, they see abject things in other people, they see disgusting things in other people, things that make the individual grimace, things that are grotesque to their core. When we encounter any form of brokenness in the other, what the Baal Shem Tov teaches us is a remarkable, remarkable teaching. He says that we have to understand that what I see, I have a relationship with. And if I see something disgusting or ugly or broken in the other person's life, in the other person's world, then somewhere deep down within myself or not so deep down, I share a similar trait. I share a similar distortion. I experience that chait, that chisarom, that lack, that deficiency, that incongruitous nature of being human. I share it within myself as well. Now, it doesn't look the same. It doesn't mean that I engage in the same behaviors that the other person engages in. But if I see something that disgusts me, if I see something that makes me shake my head and say, oi, what a nebuch, what a pathetic thing, then the immediate realization, the Baal Shem Tov says, is that we have to understand where that problem is within ourselves. Now, first and foremost, what the Baal Shem Tov does here is uproot, or not really uproot, but he, he moves against an entire trajectory of psychological thinking. That for many people, there's a concept that we all have accepted at base value as projection. That as human beings, we encounter within ourselves certain things that make us grimace. The real aspects of ourselves where in those moments of vulnerability, we encounter parts of ourselves which are frightening. Those parts of ourselves that we don't want to admit to. Those parts of ourselves that we're too embarrassed to admit to. And each and every person understands what this means according to the level of their own experience. It's not a question of action or quantity or quality, but it's a relative value that the individual has to measure for themselves. As we've pointed out in the past, Rabbi Nassan of Nimrov, 
whenever he would refer to a nefila, whenever he would refer to a chait or a chisaron or a deficiency, he would never give proper names to it. He would never name it as a noun. There was no particular action or particular encounter that Rabbi Nassim is talking about. But Rabbi Nassim always uses very generic phrases like nafal lemakom nafal, when a person has fallen to the place that they have fallen into, when a, person, when a person finds themselves lost in the place that they're lost in. One of the reasons I believe that Rabbi Nassim leaves it so open to interpretation is to show us that no matter where a person finds themselves, if their yurida is learning a little bit less, or their yurida is falling back into patterns and behaviors and addictions that they have tried to run away from for their entire lives, it makes no difference because a yurida is a yurida. And when a person encounters a yurida, when a person falls into a place within themselves that is broken, what we need to do is we need to try and face it. But because we can't face it, we project it, we ignore it, we suppress it, we hide it under the rug that holds the room together, we push it away, we hide it away from ourselves, we hide it away from ourselves, and we project it onto others, and we take those difficult fantasies, those dark encounters with our minds, and we project it onto the world, and we see it in other people, and we blame other people for these behaviors, and we blame other people for these tendencies because we can't admit to the fact that they are within ourselves. That's the basic concept of projection. What the Baal Shem Tov is saying is a total opposite of that. What the Baal Shem Tov is saying is that when I see something ugly in the world, when I see something difficult in the world, when I see something frightening in the world, I need to figure out where it is in me. Instead of me projecting the guilt that I feel onto others, I need to see the guilt that I find in others and find it within myself. It's a radical renewal of what it means to be a human being. Instead of shirking responsibility, instead of claiming that everybody else is the problem, what the Baal Shem Tov wants us to recognize is that everything is contingent within us. Our neshamos are the main thing in the world. And each and every person has to be able to say that. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says that ki ish ha'yisraeli, I'm sorry, he says that also, that's in the first teaching of Lukuta Maran. But in the fifth teaching of Lukuta Maran, da ki tzarich kol adam lomar, every person needs to say, kol ha'olam lo nivra ele bishvili, the entirety of the universe, the entirety of existence was created for nobody but me. And when I recognize that everything was created for me, then I need to look at that which is lacking in the world. And I need to look at deficiencies in the world. And I need to see what is broken in the world. And I need to take an accounting of what is broken. And then I need to look at it. And I need to penetrate into it. And I need to gaze at it unflinchingly, even though it's difficult. And I need to try and fix it. The responsibility lies on me. What the Baal Shem Tov teaches us is that we are not some peripheral players in existence, but rather we are each, each and every one of us is the center role of experience. The neshama, the soul that we have, which is a chilek eloikai mima al mamish, which is an aspect of the irreducible lowest point of spirituality that exists within us at every moment, wherein we are perpetually and undyingly connected to God, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not, makes very little difference in terms of the ontological truth of it. 
that we are deeply connected to God no matter what, come what may, in spite of anything that we have done, have done, or will do. And in that place, we are the center of the universe. That kol adam sarif lamar, each and every person needs to say, I am the center of the universe. And therefore, everything I see is a message for me. Anything I see in another person that is broken, anything that I see that causes disgust or anger within me, my job is to figure out where it's coming from within me. Now, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, makes very clear how to properly understand this idea. That when a person says, Kola olam lo nivra or as Rabbi Nachman points it out in the Lashon of Chazal, Kol echad sarich lomar, each and every person needs to say that the entirety of the world was created for me. Lubavitcher Rebbe famously pointed out that the diuk needs to be on kol echad ve'echad. Each and every person needs to be able to say that I am the entirety of existence, that the world surrounds me, that I am the pillar, I am the tzaddik yisayda oilam, I am the most essential person in the world, and everything that takes place in the world, every point of awareness that I have, is shayach to me. Ah, but that's going to lead to a solipsistic arrogance that sees myself as the most important thing. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe points out that this is the drasha of Chazal, that koil echad ve'echad, each and every person needs to say this. So for example, when I encounter the other, when I encounter somebody on the street, I need to be armed with two somewhat paradoxical notions at once. And I need to allow these paradoxical notions to dance together. On the one hand, everything that I experience, everything that I see is for me. I am the center of the universe. I am the only person in the world who has the ability to fix every, anything. And anything I encounter in the world is simply a remez, a muscle for me to incorporate and understand in my life. But at the very same moment, I need to acknowledge that that truth is absolutely true for the person in front of me as well. That for me, I am the center of the universe and the person next to me is peripheral. But for the other person, they're the center of the universe and I'm the one who's peripheral that each and every person needs to be able to say to themselves that everything that I encounter in the world, any ugliness or any beauty that I see, I need to recognize that it's on me to fix this. That if I see something dark, there's a darkness within me. And that darkness needs to be awoken and elevated and sweetened and transformed into a seat or an opening or a chariot for the godly light to descend back into the world. When a person walks around in their lives with this type of perspective, when a person walks around recognizing that every encounter that I have, every person that I encounter, every conversation that I have, every moment of human experience is there to inform me what I need to do for Hashem, that there's something that needs to be fixed. The Baal Shem Tov wasn't kidding himself. The Baal Shem Tov wasn't telling us that just be happy, the world is beautiful. The Baal Shem Tov, as we said, was a direct continuation of the teachings of the Arizal, which was a direct continuation of the teachings of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, which was a direct continuation of the teachings of Moshe Rabbeinu, as Rabbi Yitzhak Maya Morgenstern points out, Rabbi Yitzhak Maya Morgenstern Shlita points out, that there are chamisha yechide hadoros, that there are going to be five singular tzaddikim that disclose panimia satora throughout the generations. And as he points out in his Maimur, Derech Eitzchayim, in Yama Chachma Tashin Ayin, to disassociate the Baal Shem Tov from the Arizal or the Arizal from the Baal Shem Tov 
is to create a period in the world that cannot be repaired. So a person has to understand that if you want to understand the Baal Tov properly, it has to be within the context of the Arizal. That being said, what we know as axiomatic from the teachings of the Arizal is that the starting point of human consciousness is something that is already broken, something that is always already lost. There is an origin that we cannot retrieve in human consciousness. Beratius is already after the beginning because to speak of a beginning is already speaking of an entrance into the possibility of a beginning. We are always already late, which is why the Arizal points out that the base of Bereshis represents the Torah of Bria, which represents the Torah of human beings. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to enter back into a Torah that precedes the beginning, which is the Torah of Atika Stima, which is the Torah that Rabbi Nachman, and the Torah that Rabbi Shemayar, and the Torah that the different tzaddikim throughout the generations are coming to reveal. But when we look at the axiomatic building blocks of what it means to be somebody who lives with an awareness of Pnimis Torah, the Tzimtzum and the Shvira are the prerequisites to human experience. That things are broken, things are profoundly broken. But that's what needs to be understood as Aleph. But if a person comes into the world thinking that this world is perfect, then a person is going to be nothing but disappointed and frustrated. When a person reads the writings of our Mikubalim, of our Tzaddikim, and we realize that the Aleph phase, the starting point of this experience, is shatteredness and brokenness, and our job is to sift through the rubble of that brokenness and uncover the irreducible residual sparks of light to elevate them to reveal a Tsefes Kishit, an additional adornment to the holiness that abides in this world. So then we can deal with the frustration. So for the Baal Shem Tov, the starting point of existence was frustration. The starting point was wandering around the mountains in Ukraine. The starting point was hanging out with the Ganavim and the thieves and the sinners and the illusion dwellers and all those who were stuck in themselves and all of those who were terrified and fearful. And so we have to understand that when the Baal Shem Tov teaches us that what we see in the other needs to be found within ourselves because it's our job to fix everything, the Baal Shem Tov wasn't talking about hanging out with the Chavraya Kadisha. The Baal Shem Tov wasn't talking about living with the Tzadikim HaAmitim or the Tzadikim HaNistarim. The Baal Shem Tov was talking about encountering real darkness. And it's our job to see that darkness and to say, how can I fix this? One of the most remarkable things that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai does, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai comes out of the cave after 13 years. And he finally travels into town. He comes to Tveria. And the first thing he says, what can I fix here? What needs fixing here? Is there something that needs a tikkun? And the Gemara tells us that he learned that from Yaakov Avinu. That after Yaakov Avinu had encountered that shadow side of darkness by the Ma'avor Yabaik fighting with that angel of Esav in the dark of night, in the darkness of experience, the first thing that Yaakov Avinu tried to do was fix something. He was Toveya Matbeya. He built a coin. He created a currency of forms. He allowed for something new to be created. The basic starting point of our awareness needs to be what needs fixing. When I see darkness in the world, when I see things that are difficult or broken in the world, I need to ask myself, what can I do here? How can I elevate this? Lubavitch Rebbe asks a question. He says, why is this? Where does this teaching come from? The Baal Shem Tov tells us, okay, that if you see something in another person that's broken, you have to find that brokenness within yourself. 
that the other person should be a mirror for me. Why should that be true? Where does the Baal Shem Tov get this from? The Bavitcher Rebbe writes that the Baal Shem Tov is really simply reminding us of his teachings of Hashkacha Pratis. That for the Baal Shem Tov, the Divine Presence and Hashem's presence in our lives and in the world was so encompassing, was so saturating, was so ever-present, was so real, that it was impossible that I could experience something that didn't have a lesson for me, that didn't speak directly to what I needed to do at that particular moment. When I acknowledge that there is nothing that takes place in this world that is happenstance, there is nothing that takes place that is outside of the purview of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's all-encompassing power mm-hmm. and governance in my life, then any person that I encounter and anything that I see and any blade of grass that moves in a particular direction, that is a lesson for me to elevate it. So the Baal Shem Tov wasn't pulling out of his hat, God forbid, that what I see in the other in some form of a mirror is reflective of myself, but rather it is axiomatic if every single thing that takes place in reality and in my reality is directly directed and governed by God in his essence, so to speak, then of course, everything I encounter is a lesson for me. Every single thing that I see in this world is a question of what can I fix here? How can I fix this thing? How can I elevate this thing? There's another element of this teaching beyond the Hashkacha Pratis element of it that I think goes to the core of what the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh was trying to teach us. And that is the yididus and the chavraya and the ahava that a person has to have for the other person in their lives. And if a person looks at the world as scattered and separate, where each and every person is fighting for themselves and there's no interconnectivity between the center and the periphery and the periphery and the center, then what happens to the other person is their thing and it makes no difference to me as long as I can survive, as long as I can move forward. And my job is to get as far ahead as I can without falling behind. But what the Baal Shem Tov is teaching us is that there is no existence, there is no life until a person recognizes the basic fact that we are all involved and invested in this in the deepest form of unity. That what happens to one person happens to the other person and what happens to the other person happens to me. That when I see somebody struggling, that struggle is something that speaks deeply to me. That the deepest spiritual truth is the ability and the openness and the possibility of empathy, of true empathy, of being open to the awareness that the other person lives a life just like I do. And when I can join that person and when I can find myself in that person's life, there's a yichud that takes place. There's a yichud where we're able to say that we are part of the same process. Now this is true on the most collective of levels and this is true on the most particular of levels. That because everything is so interconnected, because the divine light of unity penetrates and subsumes and saturates every element of existence, there is nothing that takes place in a vacuum. Everything takes place in an interconnected gestalt or a parts of where one part influences the other part to create a sum total that is greater than the sum of its parts. The job for a Jew, the job for an individual is to find that nikuda of ahava, 
to find that nakuda of empathy within the other person's experience, to recognize that when I see that person who has fallen, I also can understand that experience. The Mittler Rebbe used to daven, to be able to experience the, in his own experience, the Yeridos that the Hasidim had experienced when they brought him kvitlach. That the, the Mittler Rebbe would not let go of a kvittel, he would not let go of a pigeon until he can find within himself, so to speak, the elements or the DNA of that experience that the Hasid came to him with. That was the true level of what a tzaddik was, the awareness that the other and I are not two separate entities, but we are part of the same process. We are part of the unfolding infinite light of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the sooner that we can get along with that recognition, the sooner I can recognize that what I see in the other is a reflection of me and what the other sees in me is a reflection of them within me. We can reveal the deep unity of the Jewish people. We can reveal the deep unity of existence, as the Balatanya points out, as the Rebbe Rashab points out in Maimar HaChaltzu. There's a remarkable teaching that can try and make this practical, because if I'm honest with myself, this idea of, of ahava hadadit, uh, of this mutual compassion and mutual love and this awareness of the interconnectivity of things, becomes very difficult when a person sees things that are ugly. It becomes very painful when a person sees themselves as fragmented and separated from what the other person is doing. And yes, a person can live with the acknowledgement that I should find unity here because HaKadosh Baruch Hu is unified and present here. But on the ground level and the real life experience of it all, sometimes it's very difficult to find compassion for another. It's very difficult to see how these two separate worldviews, these two perspectives, which seem to be on one pole and the other pole, how they can be part of the same teaching. And the first introduction really needs to be the, the, the tefillah, the tefillah of the Noyam Elimelech. But the Noyam Elimelech, Elimelech of Lezhensk, wrote in his tefillah, Koydama Tefillah, something that he was most nefesh to be able to bring down to us. Oy. He says as follows, he says, that it should be the opposite of what we're used to. It should be the opposite of assuming the worst in other people. It should be that HaKadosh Baruch Hu should place within our hearts that each and every person should be able to see the greatness of their friend, the greatness of the individual in front of them and not, God forbid, their lack, and not, God forbid, their deficiencies. Because when we live in a world that has moved away from the ever-present awareness of godly and divine presence, it becomes easier and easier to fall into period halavavos. It becomes easier and easier to fall into the fragmentation of the heart where we see only difference and we see only brokenness and we see only bad behavior. The real avoida is the Adarabba. Adarabba implies that it is counterintuitive. You don't say Adarabba unless the real natural tendency would be to see the bad in the other person, because that's what I see. But Adarabba, Tain Bilibenu, we ask HaKadosh to place within our hearts the ability to see the good in the other, the ability to find empathy with the other. There's a teaching brought down in Tanya, I believe it's in Parak Mem Gimel or Lamed Gimel, but it's a teaching brought down the Pharish from the Maggot of Mezrich. The Pasuk in Yeshaya says as follows, Yaakov asher pada es Avraham, 
Yaakov who came and redeemed Avraham. So all of the Mephorshim point out immediately. I point out, how could it be that Yaakov Avinu came to redeem Avraham? Chronologically speaking, Yaakov Avinu came after Avraham and they didn't even live on this planet at the same time. I'm wrong there. I mean, I think they, they lived on the planet for a little bit of the same time. Maybe not. No, I think that Avram Avinu died. HaKadosh Baruch Hu took Avram Avinu out of this world early so that he didn't have to see Esav. So how could it be? How could it be that Yaakov Asher Padas Avram, that Yaakov is the one who redeems Avram? So Chazal tell us that when Avram Avinu went into the Kivshan Ha'ish with Nimrod, that he was saved because Yaakov Avinu would come out afterwards. Now, the Magad of Mezrich is teaching on this teaching where he says as follows. He says, the Midah of Avram Avinu is the Midah of Chesed, of Ahava, of love, of compassion, of connectivity, of unity, of the ability to see oneself aligned with the other, to see oneself in the same process as the other. That's Ahava, that's Avram Avinu. But there comes a time where Ahava dies. There comes a time where Ahava and Chesed are no longer accessible, where what I see in the other is so overwhelming, is so grotesque, is so ugly, is so other than what I know, that I have a very difficult time, that a person will have an incredibly difficult time to uncover that love, that Ahava, that undying love, that Ahava She'en Etzuliya So what happens when love dies? What happens when that kindness dies? What a person needs to access is the Midah of Yaakov Avinu. The Midah of Yaakov Avinu is Rachamim. The Midah of Yaakov Avinu is compassion, is empathy. That when love dies, the only way to awaken it is to encounter the other person as a human being, as to see the other person as flesh and blood just like you. And that just as I am a product of parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and microsystems and macrosystems that influence my emotional sustainability and my feelings and my sensitivities, and that I have dreams that have been broken and that have succeeded and that I have fears and joys and hopes, all of the things that make me human, the same is true for the other person as well. That person in front of me who I can't love that person in front of me, where Adaraba doesn't even cover it anymore, I need to awaken within myself compassion and empathy to realize that we're part of the same cloth and that we're part of the same story. And that's what it means that when a person encounters the shared humanity of the other person, and they realize the circumstantial nature of individuals' behaviors, not to God forbid take away responsibility or guilt, that's not what we're speaking about, that's never what we're speaking about. But when it comes to human encounter, that vulnerable experience of the shared humanity is what awakens the possibility of love again. And in that way, what we can encounter is that unity that the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh teaches us. And what I see in the other person is a lesson for me because when I can awaken within myself that Rachamim, when I can awaken that power of Yaakov Avinu within me, I can reawaken that Ahava of Avram Avinu, that Ahava Sheinotuliyabadavar, that Ahava that is rooted in the deep awareness that all is unified. This is the teaching of the great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, the Torah Reish Pei Beis, 282nd teaching in the first volume of Lukut Maran. That quite literally, when I see good in another person, I elevate that other person. 
He's not talking about magical thinking. If I choose to see the other person as part of the same cloth, if I choose to awaken the vulnerable compassion and empathy in spite of all the differences, I am in truth elevating that person to a kapschus because in my world, in my mind, they are now the kapschus. And that's how I affix things. So that the avoid of the balshemto, the deep avoid of Ava Sisro, of the love of each and every Jew, no matter what they have done, no matter who they are, come what may, which was as deeply significant as the love of the Torah and the love of Akadush Baruch Hu. It is dependent on our ability to Aleph recognize that most often things are going to be schwer, things are going to be broken. But what we need to do is we re- need to redouble down with that positive vision that Rabbeinu teaches us in Torah Reish Pebez, which he learned from his great-grandfather. The ability to be a toiv roi, to see the good in the other person, to awaken that vulnerable human nature within each and every person, and to awaken the flames of love once again. Be'ezus Hashem, what we're going to discuss next week, is going to be the process of how we elevate things that look broken. Is it enough to just say that everything is good? And by now the answer should be an obvious no. That's not what the Baal Shem Tov was coming to teach us. He wasn't coming to obliterate a system. He was coming to create a system. He was coming to reveal a new level of a system. And we're going to see the three-stage process of Hachna'a, Havda'a, and Hamtaka, of minimization or suppression, separation and sweetening. We're going to see Be'ezus Hashem next week how the Hashem Tov gives us Eitzos and Hadrachos as to how to do this on each and every level. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.